We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. We'll give attention to the public reading of Scripture, and then we will carry on in our studies in Genesis. Before I do that, though, I will mention this is the last chapter in our series of reading through the Bible. I've been mentioning that over the course of the last few weeks. It's good to see you folks back there. Thank you for coming. You brighten my countenance by your presence. <laughs> I'm going to ask and try to ask some volunteers to help us with reading uh, Sunday evening and Sunday morning services. I've read through the whole Bible many, many times, but I think it's a good di- discipline for you to participate with us if God would Uh, poke you and say, hey, you could be involved in the reading of Scripture publicly for the church family while you come and see me, and I will put you to work, okay? Uh, You might say to yourself, well, I can't read it like pastor reads it, or I don't have the experience to be able to stop and make a comment here or there. That's totally fine. You've got to start somewhere. I look back at these babies in the back, and they're not walking yet, but they're going to be soon enough, God willing. And uh, so you've got, to, you've got to crawl before you can walk, before you can run. So just uh, you know, be, uh, be aware of that opportunity that I would like to have some of us to be able to do that. Song of Solomon in the eighth chapter. Uh, we have a little bit more explicit material here and also a, kind of a, a, a look at the transition of the life of a young woman from being uh, a young woman into being a, uh, a full-grown woman, and you'll see that as we read, starting in chapter 8 and verse 1, and still some words between the lovers as well. Oh, that you were like my brother who nursed at my mother's breasts. If I should find you outside, I would kiss you. I would not be despised. I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother, she who used to instruct me. I would cause you to drink of spiced wine, of the juice of my pomegranate. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. Who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning upon her beloved? I awakened you under the apple tree. There your mother brought you forth. There she who bore you brought you forth. Set me as a seal upon your heart as a seal upon your arm. For love is as strong as death, jealousy as cruel as the grave. Its flames are flames of fire, a most vehement flame. Many waters cannot quench love, nor can the floods drown it. If a man would give for love all the wealth of his house, it would be utterly despised. We have a little sister, and she has no breasts. What shall we do for our sister in the day when she is spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build upon her a battlement of silver. And if she is a door, we will enclose her with boards 
of cedar. These are the Shulamites' brothers who are responsible to protect her from people who, uh, men who would take advantage of her. I'll just put it that way. The Shulamite then replies, uh, here it appears, I am a wall and my breasts like towers. Then I became in his eyes as one who found peace. Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Haman. He leased the vineyard to keepers. Everyone was to bring for its fruit a thousand silver coins. My own vineyard is before me. You, O Solomon, may have a thousand, and those who tend its fruit two hundred. You who dwell in the gardens, the companions, listen for your voice. Let me hear it. Make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or young stag on the mountains of spices. And thus ends the reading of Holy Scripture one time through. And I pray that God will bless that reading uh, to you. As I said, when I began reading the Song of Solomon, some of you might question the wisdom of doing that uh, or the necessity of doing that, but it is Scripture. It's the whole counsel of God. And uh, as I said at the beginning, eight, probably eight or nine weeks ago now, I believe there probably are some couples who need a little encouragement in the area of their love to one another. And one of the things that we want to do and encourage in the church here is um, in marriages to stay together, to stay strong, because that is the fabric and foundation of our society, and it's what God wants for us. It also gives our young people who aren't yet married uh, something to think about and look forward to uh, as they consider the possibility of being married someday. All right, let's turn our Bibles back to Genesis, please. And we're in chapters 18 and 19. We're going to take the second half of chapter 18 and and 19 as well today and deal with a topic which today is, uh, in essence, uh, forbidden to be spoken about by anyone in public, Um, the sins that were found in Sodom and Gomorrah. And we're just going to address them as we do every passage of Scripture straightforwardly and with uh, uh, literal interpretation of the Bible. The, the uh, portion of Scripture here today does deal with Sodom and Gomorrah and a number of other cities that existed in the southern plain near the south end of what is today known as the Dead Sea. It's believed that they may have been existing in that spot where the Dead Sea is and now covers where they were. The truth that I drew from this, there are many applications, that, as we'll see, and I'll, I'll try to give the, a preview of those and then we'll go into the text, but the truth that I drew from this is that in wrath toward sinners, God remembered mercy toward Lot and in turn towards Abraham. And uh, the applications are along these lines. We see in this passage, especially at the end, we'll see something about drunkenness and the associated immorality that happens with that. So the application is obviously avoid both of those things. Certainly drunkenness leads to immorality, and we want to encourage you and urge you to stay away from alcohol and and those dangers. And really that whole scene is just so fraught with danger, especially for young women today. Uh, Don't hesitate to leave an evil situation like Lot should have done, You want to also be encouraged to show true and protective hospitality toward people. You'll see Lot does do that despite some of his failings. 
Uh, you want to be boldly insistent in your intercessory prayer. Did you get that? Boldly insistent in your intercessory prayer. We're going to see some of that with Abraham. And we're going to see also that he, and like uh, we should do the same, interceded for God's mercy on the saved, as well as, I think, we should be praying for his long-suffering toward the lost. We'll see that as well. And we want to be diligent to be known by God, as well as to know him. The long passage here starts in verse 16 of chapter 18. If you'd let your eyes find that verse in your Bible, uh, Genesis 18, verse 16, and it goes all the way through the end of chapter 19. As I studied the passage, it seemed to me to fall naturally into five sections. That's why you'll see Roman numerals 1 through 5 in the notes. God reveals here his plans uh, to Abraham, his plans to judge Sodom for its sin. Abraham intercedes for the righteous people living there, and then two angels go to Sodom and survey the situation and rescued Lot and his two daughters. And then the last part of chapter 19 deals with Lot's post-Sodom life, and it was a mess. Now note that in remembering mercy toward Lot, God was honoring his promise to Abraham and the covenant that he had made with Abraham. Lot was the kind of accidental recipient of blessings from God because of his uncle. And we've said this several times before, you want to, you want to also be a recipient of those blessings, either directly or accidentally, don't you? I'll take, the, I'll take as many protections and blessings from God as I can get, and those may come through my associations with you people, the ministry that God has given to me, your prayers, and the same thing for you and your family. You know, your dad, your mom may be a very godly person who's praying in their closet for you. Your family members. Maybe you don't even believe the Lord yet. Maybe you're a young person here and you're not sure of your walk with Christ. Well, God says that he sanctifies the children for the sake of the parents. There is some umbrella of protection there for them. So Lot enjoyed some of that. We start with then God's, <clears throat> excuse me, God's plan for Sodom in chapter 18 and verse 16. I'll read four, uh, five verses here. It says, Then the men arose from there and looked towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to send them on the way. Now just pause there and remember that we saw three men appear in chapter 18. We learned last week that the three men were actually the Lord, pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord, and then two angels with him. Okay, so this isn't the Trinity, but this is God, probably a pre-incarnate Christ, and then the two angels. And we see that very clearly if you look and uh, read the whole portion, but then look at chapter 19.1. Now it says, now the two angels came to Sodom. So Moses tells us directly that these are two angels, and we learn that it's the Lord here as well. So that's what's going on. And God is going to go down <clears throat> here really send his angels as his uh, agents down there. And uh, here's what it says in verse 17. And the, and the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him that they keep the way of the Lord 
to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. And the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, because their sin is grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me, and if not, I will know. So, in an anthropomorphic way, God says, I'm going to go down there and I'm going to get a a first-hand view of this directly with my own eyeballs. Obviously, God knows everything. He doesn't need any confirmation, but it's kind of like uh, going to confirm with two or three witnesses. We're going to see just how how bad it is down there, and uh, we're going to we're going to see how grave the situation was in our next section here as we read on. Abraham was privileged to be in the know about God's plans with respect to Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, did God have to tell Abraham what he was doing? No, but God, some, for some reason, delights to do so. He delights to tell his people what is going to happen in advance of it because he has a relationship with them. He says, Abraham is destined to become a great nation. All the other nations of the world will be blessed in him, restating the Abrahamic covenant, of course. And the act of judgment that God was about to unleash on these wicked cities does influence Abraham. I mean, his nephew is living there, so good to get a word to Abraham, perhaps, about this. Um, It's an example of a more general principle here, which is that God reveals his plans to his servants. In Amos chapter 3, verse 7, it says, paraphrasing a little bit, that God doesn't do anything without revealing his plans to his servants, the prophets. And then in John chapter 15 and 15, you remember a few weeks ago I preached a message called, Are You a Friend of God? or something like that. And in John 15, the Lord says, No longer do I call you servants or slaves, I call you my friends. Because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but I'm revealing everything that the Father has told me to you. And so, not only to his servants, the prophets, but also to his friends, the apostles, and by extension, then to us as well. You realize how privileged you are to know the, the, the ways and the will of God? I thought for years about writing something, a, a book-length treatment on the kingdom of God, and I thought this morning on the way to church, here's how I'm going to start it. I'm not sure if this is how I will, but one possible way. Opening verse or words in the first chapter. Look, here's what's going to happen. And just lay it out. Here's what's going to happen. And then go into the details. He's telling Abraham, look, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to go down and send the angels. Obviously, they're going to look into this situation, and we're going to figure out what's happening, and we're going to make a decision. Abraham, and, and like us, we are deeply privileged to be in the know on what God is doing in the world. Do you realize that? You can sit there and watch the evening news and all of the murder and mayhem and everything, and you've got a context in which to put it, that the world doesn't. The world is hopeless. You're hopeful. Everything is getting worse, except when God returns in Christ, and then it will get better. Okay, It's only going to get worse until it gets better. <laughs> it's going to be much better. So we know that, and we can fit that into our thinking and not become all, you know, panicked and crazy about that stuff. 
Now, in verse 19, it says, For I have known him. God knows Abraham. It's important that God knows us as well. Remember that passage in Matthew 7, Depart from me, workers of iniquity, I never knew you. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse number 3, the Bible uses a similar knowing language. It says, If anyone loves God, this one is known by God. Known by God. Galatians chapter 4 and verse number 9, listen to these words, the same idea. But now, after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn to the weak and beggarly elements? You know, they're getting into all this kind of ritualistic stuff again. And, you know, we could say the, in the modern terms like the, the incense, you know, and the, the vestments and all that stuff. So you think that's going to earn you favor with God? Forget it. It's not going to do that. Touch not, taste not, handle not, obeying the law, circumcision, all the stuff the Galatians were mixed up in. But the important part for our message here this morning is you've known God or rather are known by Him. Who knew you first? Or who, who knew whom first? God knew you first. God knew you before you knew anything. God knew you while you were in the womb, even before uh, you were from eternity past. God knew and loved you. In John chapter 6, the Lord asked the disciples, will you two go away? And they said, no, no, we're not going to go away. You're the one that has eternal life. And Jesus replies, you know, you have not chosen me, but I chose you. That's the kind of same idea of knowing in, uh, in this context. So God's knowledge of Abraham is, is, is also purposeful knowledge. It's not just that he happens to know him, but it says in verse 19, I've known him. Why? In order that he may do something that he may command his children and his household after him, and that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken of him. Very interesting that he has known Abraham with the goal or purpose that Abraham would command his children. Dads have that responsibility. Granddads have that responsibility. Moms, too, of course, but... We're uniquely positioned as head of home to be able to teach our descendants to keep God's ways, to do righteousness and justice, and then to experience God's fulfillment of promises toward us. In this case, the fulfillment of the covenant toward Abraham. God saves us to redeem us from every iniquity and to purify us so that we would pursue energetically every good work. Okay, so he's known him with a purpose. He knows you with a purpose as well. And he gives us that purpose, as I've just outlined, in the New Testament. We want to make sure that we're following that purpose. He didn't know us, choose us, save us, just to let us you know, linger in our sinful state that we were to begin with. All right, well, God's going down there to check things out, verses 20 to 21. Uh, Proverbs 18.13 says that uh, it's a, the fool is the one who answers a matter before he hears it. And, of course, God knew all things, but he's going down to make sure that nobody can say he's answering the matter before he hears it. 
Now, in the remainder of chapter uh, 18, we're going to see uh, Abraham's intercession. So it says, Then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom. So that's the two that we pick up with in chapter 19, verse 1, the two angels. Uh, But Abraham still stood before the Lord. So now we know it's the Lord. Capital L-O-R-D, the tetragrammaton here. Moses is telling us, yep, this is this was God that, it, that Abraham was talking to. And Abraham came near and said, would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? There are over 50 people here today. You think God would spare fire and brimstone on Ann Arbor for the sake of us 50? Hmm. Make it a little more personal that way, doesn't it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? So the Lord said, of course he will. So the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, I, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. And so notice there are two things that are going to happen. Mercy upon the righteous, but more long-suffering toward the wicked. Now, God could selectively, you know, save the righteous and judge the wicked. That's not often how it happens, though, in a natural disaster kind of situation, is it? But... He says, okay, I'll do that. And so really Abraham is accomplishing two things, asking for more long-suffering and uh, toward the lost, the unbelieving, the wicked, and also mercy toward the saved. Uh, Then Abraham answered and said, Indeed now, I who am but dust and ashes have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. He's right about that. I don't even emphasize that in my notes because there's so much here. But just remember that you are dust and ashes before the Lord. Suppose there were five less than the 50 righteous. Would you destroy all the city for lack of five? He said, if I find there 45, I will not destroy it. And he spoke to him yet again and said, suppose there should be 40 found there. So he said, I will not do it for the sake of 40. Then he said, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 should be found there. So he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, Indeed, now I have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 should be found there. So he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 20. Then he said, Let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak but once more. Suppose 10 should be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 10. So the Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. In these verses, we found the classic statement about God's justice. Verse 25 says, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Of course he will. Abraham's point is that God would not slay the righteous with the wicked. He's really asking him that. Now, what happens with the righteous? If God were to allow them to die, they would be in paradise. And today, with the Lord. So that's not terrible. Is it? <laughs> it's not bad. But from, a, from the Old Testament mindset and from the human perspective, it seems better that the righteous not perish. 
with the wicked. Obviously, that seems to be sensible. And so his point is that God will not do that, and we too, because the judge of all the earth will do right. Listen, the principle of this covers all those times when we find it impossible to understand the ways of God. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? It's as good as an assertion. God will always do the right, the best, the righteous, the holy, the perfect thing in accordance with his ways. He has everything arranged properly in the big picture, which only he can know and understand. You cannot see it yet, but God does. And he always does right. Even if things seem out of control in your life or in the world situation, by the time you zoom out, you know, the, the, the lens and you look from a long enough perspective and you have some time, you may, you may, not guaranteed because we can't understand the infinite mind of God, but you may understand better and say, oh, I see why he didn't let me make the event yesterday because I was going to get smashed in a car accident. We don't know what God has planned. And so a bad thing turns into actually a good thing that's worthy of our thanksgiving. We can't understand all of that, but you know what? You don't have to understand all of that. God is righteous. There is no shortcoming of holiness, no sin in his being or behavior. Nothing he does is wrong. There is no darkness in him. So we can trust God completely, utterly, absolutely, entirely, even when we don't understand what is going on. Okay, so shall not the judge of the earth do right? He does right in heaven above, in hell beneath, on the earth, under the sea, and everywhere. He does what is right and good. And that includes permitting sin to uh, reign on the earth for the present time for his own good purposes. I don't understand all of that. I think, man, it'd be nice if we didn't have to deal with all of this. But God has his plan and he's working it, and he does always what is right. Abraham's faith was solid, wasn't it? Now, sometimes God does permit righteous people to die for reasons known to him, however enigmatic it may seem to us. Other times, God spares the wicked for the sake of the righteous, even though there are far fewer righteous than wicked, right? The the narrow, uh, the narrow road and the broad way are still true, and they were true back then, even as they are now. Uh, he extends such mercy also because there are a lot of what I'll call clueless people. Clueless people. Now, when I say that, I'm, I'm being a little reserved because there are people who don't know their right hand from their left. There are people who, morally speaking, there are young people There are people who haven't been instructed in the ways of God. I mean, think of the ignorance that is surrounding us. You go talk to somebody today about who Jesus is, and they only know him as a swear word and some guy that Christians believe in, and that's it. I mean, that's very shameful indeed. It's poor, it's pathetic, but they're kind of clueless about things. But it doesn't take a sophisticated theologian to figure out that God has been very patient with our nation. I thank him for his mercy because our nation, like many others on the planet, richly deserves a whole lot of retribution for the evil that we do. And so thank God for his extended mercy 
to nations filled with people who are in opposition to him. Now, notice Abraham's boldness in making these prayer, these really requests, prayer, we call them uh, intercessory prayer, but in a sense, it hardly seems like prayer because he's speaking to God face to face. You know, you think of prayer like, you know, closed eyes, bowed head, folded hands. You can't see God and all of that. Um, So it hardly seems like prayer because he's talking with God directly. Prayer seems more remote today, kind of like being in church and watching it on the live stream. You know, you're a little distance away. But prayer that's remote in the way that we're accustomed to need not be any less effective because you're praying to the same God that Abraham was. James chapter 5 says the active prayer of a righteous person accomplishes a lot. It accomplishes a great deal. How does it do that, you ask? I mean, how is it that things are the way they are and God's ordained them the way they will be and yet my prayer is somehow involved? That question is ultimately above your pay grade. No matter how high your pay grade is, it's above. But we can glean from the Bible that God sovereignly pre-planned your prayer to be part of his plan. So we pray. We pray because he tells us to pray. He's already pre-planned our prayers to be involved, and we see the answers come to our prayers from time to time, and we know that prayer is effective. So Abraham uh, prays and he asks God boldly, insistently, what about if there's 50, 40, 5, 40, 30, 20, 10, all the way down? What boldness? Now, we can have that kind of boldness, just like he had, on a basis that we understand even better than he did, that he's invited us to come boldly before the throne of grace to find help in the time of need. On the basis of the work of Christ, we have access by what? Faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So we have a foundation, a platform, if you will, to reach out to God through Christ in a way that Abraham himself didn't even understand. Abraham could pray to God, of course, but we have this this sure foundation upon which we know we can pray. The sad thing was that God didn't find 10 people in the city. He found Lot, Lot's wife, two daughters that were unmarried, and then some other family members refused to leave the doomed city. So there were four. Maybe if this whole family had agreed to come with him, there would have been a couple other sons and their daughter and their wives. So there would have been eight. Maybe they had a child or two, maybe ten. But evidently, there weren't ten because God destroyed the city, right? And he promised he wouldn't if there were ten. So less than ten, we know. So now in chapter 19, the angels come to Sodom and uh, urge Lot to leave the city. Let us read. It says, the angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of that city called Sodom. When Lot saw them, he arose to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. And he said, Hear now, my lords, please turn into your servant's house and spend the night. Wash your feet that you may rise early and go on your way. And they said, no, we will spend, but we will spend the night in the open square. 
but he, Lot, insisted strongly, so they turned into him and entered his house. Then he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Now, he's offering hospitality to these folks, and the reason that he insisted they come will become evident in the next verse. He was protecting them from the vile wickedness of the people of that city. So, we know that two angels came. Moses identified them as angels. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they had to come kind of disguised as men because if they came in as shining beings with wings, their mission wouldn't have worked. They would not have drawn out the wickedness of the city. So this is a bit of an undercover uh, operation here. They, uh, but the Bible does tell us the language of appearance here, that these men appear, or these angels appeared as men. But they were really angels. Uh, we know that's not misleading, however, because the text tells us exactly what's happening. So when they arrive, they come to Lot. He's sitting at the gate of the city, which indicates uh, perhaps more than he's just on the welcoming committee. He's a judge in that city. He's a leader there in that city, and perhaps he was trying to reform the city. But Second Peter 2 tells us that he was righteous, and he was extremely distressed by the wicked, sensual conduct all around him. He tormented himself day after day, Peter tells us. Perhaps there are two reasons why he was tormented. Number one, tormented because he might have said, being around this is bad for me and my daughters, I should move. And secondly, and and that may be something necessary in your life. You may be in a situation, in a workplace, in a place of residence where it's not right and you need to move to protect your family from the evil that is there. That may, in fact, be a requirement at some point in your life. But his torment may have also had another angle to it. His torment might have been involved with the idea that not only that I'm, this is bad and I've got to get out of here, but these people are doing things that are so damaging to themselves, they are going to hell. They are going to be judged. They are going to be punished by God. However, his punishment works out in their lives, and they're going to face God's judgment. That should torment Lot, and it should torment us as well. Now, Lot was a hospitable person. He offered hospitality, like in Hebrews 13, to angels unawares, at least initially. He wanted to ensure the safety of the men who came into the city. He knew the wickedness of the city and what would happen to the men, he thought, if they were uh, out there in the city square all night. So he was protecting them from that harm. For this reason, he said, they have come under my roof in verse number 8. Now, we look at verse number 9, the wickedness of the city becomes evident. It says, now before they lay down, this is at nighttime, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house. And they called to Lot and said to him, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them carnally. So Lot went out to them through the doorway and shut the door behind him and said, please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. See now, now this is unbelievable too. I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please let me bring them out to you, and you may do to them as you wish. Only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason they have come under the shadow of my roof. And they said, stand back. Then they said, this one came in here 
came in to stay here, and he keeps acting like a judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near to break down the door. But the men reached out their hands and pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they became weary trying to find the door. The city here, my friends, was given over to promiscuous, all-the-time pattern of homosexuality. Now, some have tried to undermine this accusation by saying that the men of Sodom were merely inhospitable or some other far-fetched thing. One of the common ones today is that, well, it, it, it was that they were they were merely promiscuous, not that they were homosexual, not that they were sodomites or seeking to do that to these men. Don't let that stuff fool you or trick you at all. It's crystal clear. In fact, if you look in Jude 7, let's just, let's just do this because this is such a thing today. People get so twisted around. It says in Jude 7, the book right before Revelation, As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in similar manner to these, having given themselves over to, it doesn't say inhospitality, it says having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. The temporal fire that God sent down in brimstone was a picture of the eternal judgment that he would have for those who have rejected him fully. So we have a clear testimony of what the sin was. The fact of the matter is that they were serial homosexual people. Probably lots of other sins were rampant in the city as well, but the Bible is very clear that homosexuality itself is a sin and not just the promiscuous version of it. And I list a number of verses in Leviticus, Romans, 1 Corinthians, and 1 Timothy that are clear on this topic. Okay? So there can be no idea that this is okay. Now, in the heat of the moment, Lot began to act in a very unprincipled way. He offered his two virgin daughters to the crowd to appease their sensual desires Obviously, this is extraordinarily wrong, sinful. Um, They were in a a very bad situation. You have to acknowledge that and how to handle that situation. (laughs) Not that way, but thankfully, he had angels on his side to uh, overcome the sheer numbers of people against him, Lot, that is. So the two uh, angel-slash-men saved Lot's life from the wicked of the city, and uh, this is the first time of two times that they saved his life. Okay, Two times altogether, but this is the first. And so now the angels drag Lot out of Sodom, and the city is destroyed in verses 15 to 19. The thing that strikes me here is how they had to, they had to take him by the hand and basically drag him out of the city. Why is it, well, let let me read, starting in verse 15. Um, Or Actually, uh, where do we stop here? 11, so 12. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, or whomever you have in the city, take them out of this place. For we will destroy this place, because the outcry against them has grown great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. 
So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who had married his daughters and said, Get up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city. But to his sons-in-law, he seemed to be joking. When the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. And while he lingered, the men took hold of his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside of the city. Can you imagine one angel with Lot and one daughter in each hand and another angel with mom and another daughter in his hand and out of the city they go? The the day is just about to break. They've got to get out of there. Judgment is coming. God has assigned them to judge the city if they found it as wicked as he thought it was. And they weren't going to waste any time getting the job done. So they lingered. Now, why would they linger? Well, you think about it. You've lived in a place for a while. Do you want to move? You have family just down the street. They're about to be judged if you believe what the angel said. Do you want to leave them? It's a little harder than just saying, oh, why didn't you just do what the Bible says to do? Well, of course, you should always do what the Bible says to do. But there are, there are strings that get attached to us that sometimes try to prevent us from doing what the Bible says to do. Sometimes you have to leave father and mother and brother and sister and aunt and uncle and all of that to follow God. You've got to certainly leave them if, you're, if you want to get, rid of, get away from judgment because there's division and all of that in, in homes. You've got to, uh, to just deal with it. So there are a lot of strings attaching them to the place, but uh, they were uh, finally successfully dragged out. People don't like change. You know, and other times people don't believe that calamity is coming. Oh, we've heard it all before. You know, the doom and gloom and naysayers and it's all going to, you know. Where's the promise of his coming? People say today, don't they? They scoff. It did back in the first century they did that. You know, okay. Well, everything's going to be fine until it's not fine. Everything will continue as it is until it doesn't. And it's just the reality. Yeah, God works slowly. The time scale is not, you know, to our fast food, uh, you know, one-minute attention span for the videos on your YouTube or whatever. God doesn't work like that. But when he said he's going to do something, he's going to do something. So the angels offer... Oh, I should say this too. You know, the calamity that's coming is going to come upon every human being who does not trust in Christ. And, and yet sin blinds us to its presence and thus hides from our eyes. We don't see the problem. We don't want to see the problem. We don't want to think that things could get worse. We don't want to accept it. But God's telling us in advance, repent or perish The angels offered salvation from the destruction of the city. Uh, Lot, two virgin daughters, at least two other daughters who had married Lot's sons-in-law, maybe eight people, but they didn't leave. All of them, only four, accepted the offer, and they had to do it by urging. And uh, God says in the text that the Lord being merciful to him. Where does it say that? Verse 16, while he lingered, the men took hold of his hand, his wife's hands, and the hands of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside of the city. 
So they brought him out and they said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you nor stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountain lest you be destroyed. Then Lot said to them, Please know, my lords, indeed now your servant has found favor in your sight and you have increased your mercy which you have shown to me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountain lest some evil overtake me and I die. There's a lion in the street. I can't obey what you've told me to do, God. Uh, there's a snake in the wall. I can't touch that. Ironically, later on in chapter 19, the text shows us that he ended up living in the mountains in a cave. He ended up going where God had told him to go. He was forced to go there, probably because the city to which he went was just as dangerous as the ones that he came from, or nearly so. So he says, see now, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Please let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my soul shall live. And, they, and he said to him, see, I have favored you concerning this thing also, and that I will not overthrow this city for which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. You see that God's acts of judgment sometimes, as in this case, are gated. There's a, a gating function that all the believers have to be cared for. And then the judgment will open. The gate will open for the judgment. Do you understand what I'm saying? I think it's the same with the rapture. The tribulation is gated, is prevented by the presence of the Spirit in the church and believers on the earth when God takes them out. Then, boom, the tribulation will come. So I can't do anything until you're out. Why? Because God commanded him. You get law out of there. Then you do the judgment that you have to do. The sun had risen upon the earth when Lot entered the city. So the city is called Zoar, and Lot entered there. Verse 24 says, Then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. This was, you know, some try to say, well, was this a volcano or some other natural disaster? Well, I mean, maybe God could have used that, but the timing was too perfect. It had to be miraculously uh, miraculously done. You say, well, that doesn't happen. That doesn't happen. Oh, yeah? Parting, parting the sea doesn't happen. Resurrection doesn't happen. Uh, plagues on Egypt don't happen, except they do when God miraculously intervenes in a time and space continuum, and he does those activities as he sees fit. There's much more to the world than the natural seen world, isn't there? There's a whole bunch of stuff principalities and powers, angels and demons, God and, and the Spirit and, and Jesus Christ and the heavens above and judgment beneath and all of the things that we cannot see, more, much more than, than the eyes behold. Uh, so he overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground, but his wife looked back behind him and she became a pillar of salt. Remember those strings holding you back from obeying God? They, they got a hold of her heart and caused her to turn back, uh, violating the express command, don't even look back, that the angels gave. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. Then he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain, and he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. And it came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain that he remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had dwelt. So Lot complains that this, the mountains are too dangerous, I can't go there. So instead, uh, plans change. He goes to this place called Zoar 
And um, now we turn to Abraham in verse 27, and he kind of seems like he's kind of on a a hill or a high vantage point. In fact, we know that's where he was living with those trees. Remember that place we talked about last time? He looks down to the, the plain way down there, and he sees the smoke rising from this place as if it were the smoke of a furnace. Mm. Terrible judgment. God was merciful to him and, uh, and protected him. Now, we're way past uh, the time that I would have to deal with this in a kind of detail, but I'll let you read the last part of chapter 19. Uh, the, the, the bottom line is Lot gets into a very immoral situation with his daughters. He had not found husbands for his daughters yet. He gets drunk. There's incest involved. And then you have the law of sowing and reaping. The Moabites and the Ammonites came from those unions, and those people troubled Israel for many a day and year after that. Yet I note that although God prohibited the Moabites from being in the congregation of the Lord, there was one special young Moabite woman who came into the congregation because of her faith. Her name was Ruth, and she landed in the lineage of the Messiah because she placed her faith in the God of the Bible, even though she had a terrible Moabite background and the idolatrous worship associated with that. So, as we said at the beginning, avoid drunkenness. I hear all the papers going, okay? I'm not quite done yet, because there is one very important principle that I have to give you yet. I I introduced all the principles already. I, I said you need to avoid drunkenness, immorality, Don't hesitate to leave an evil situation, even if there are strings attaching you to it. Show hospitality. Be boldly insistent in your intercessory prayer like Abraham was. You know, if you've got to pray for 50 years, do it. If you've got to pray for God to save for 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10, 5, 1, do it. Be diligent to be known by God and to pray for His intercession. But here is what I wanted to come to because this passage is so kind of wrongly used. Is the sin named after the city in this section the worst of the worst sins? The sin is called sodomy, homosexuality, a certain variant of it, because of the name of the city. That's how it got its name. Is that sin the worst? Some of our people treat it as if it is. And I'm here to tell you on the authority of God from heaven that if you break one commandment of His, you've broken them all. You might be a very fine heterosexual person who is as promiscuous as can be and you are under the same condemnation as these people in Genesis 19. Okay? Is this sin the worst? I answer this way, not by a long shot. I can prove that from Scripture. Yes, the sinful, the lifestyle that we're talking about here is sinful, but the person involved in it can repent and turn away from it and be just as cleansed as you and I are from our sins if we've repented from our sin, be completely forgiven, wash them as clean, as white as snow, The Bible says rejecting Christ is a far worse sin. And there is no rescue from that sin because there's no other way of salvation. And then I want you to note this in Matthew chapter 10. 
The Lord himself says something that will clearly answer the question that I have posed. In Matthew chapter 10 and verse number 12, the Bible says this, And when you go into a household, greet it. If the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whoever will not receive you nor hear your words when you depart from the house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Now look at Matthew chapter 11, verse 23. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Why? Did you pick up why? The text told us why. You reject the word of God. You reject the workers of God. And you reject the miraculous works of God. It is worse than the sin of Sodom. You get that? You know, God sends his messengers to preach, and you've rejected them. Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, people today who say, eh. Or, as in the case of Capernaum, Jesus comes there, he works miracles, he authenticates, therefore, who he is, his person, his work, rejecting Jesus, clearly sent from God, works done by the power of the Holy Spirit, clearly, that is worse than the sin of Sodom. God expects that you will receive his gracious gift, revealing himself, whether it's through miraculous works, biblical words, or Christian workers. And if you don't, then you're due the kind of judgment that you're probably thinking the people of Sodom are due. Okay, you with me? No excuses now, friends. The Lord Jesus himself said it'll go better for them in Sodom than it will for you if you reject the revelation of God. That is why we're so insistent here as a Bible church. We give you the revelation of God. We preach it. We believe it. We hold to, dearly to it. And we try to live it because we know that if we reject what God has said and done, it's bad news. It's the worst news. So don't be thinking that you've got, you know, I'm, whew, I'm better than those folks. And you can say, you know, when God's word is preached, eh, not good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, convict us if we have any sin in this area of misjudging uh, the nature of sin and uh, overlooking our own sin because we think we're better than somebody else. That's not the case. Lord, help us to be humble. Help us to be prepared in our ever-increasingly... Uh, strange society going after strange flesh and all of the, the difficulties there. Help us to be able to minister to folks who are trapped in all kinds of sins and to do so without, uh, how can I say, hypercritical judgment like our Lord said to us. And Lord, help us to recognize when we are taking lightly your word and maybe we do need to leave behind our old ways, no matter the strings attached, to do the will of God.
Help us to know about these things. Thank you that you have shown them to us today. In Jesus' name, amen.